You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with David Goldberg, who's founder and CEO of Founders Pledge. After a successful for-profit exit, he was left wondering, how do I do the most good with this money I've made? He's essentially started an organization that helps other people answer that question. It's a global community of entrepreneurs finding and funding solutions to big global challenges. Launched in 2015, Founders Pledge has raised more than $3 billion, that's billion with a B, in pledges from something like 1,500 entrepreneurs in 30 countries. Now, this has led to already $475 million donated to charity as a result. Their members include the people behind some of the most innovative companies in the world, including Planet, Bolt, Memphis Meets, TransferWise, Credit Karma, Skype, Spotify, and others. We'll talk about how he created the organization, some of the challenges along the way, their theory of change and how they help their clients, their members to choose what cause to give to, which charities to give to in that cause, and how to be most effective in using their money for good. I think this will be really interesting, so stay tuned. Hello, David. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about Founders Pledge. And maybe a place to start is, how did you decide to found the organization? Well, that's kind of a complicated story. And I guess it maybe sort of starts a bit with my personal journey. So maybe I'll, you know, as they say, go back to the beginning. I started a business by accident in 2006 when I was a bit younger. And a couple of years later, it wasn't a sexy business, by the way. It was like a, a bootstrapped brick and mortar, no technology kind of deal, but it was successful. And a couple of years later, I sold it and found myself with a meaningful amount of money. And, um, and I felt like I had gotten pretty lucky in my life to that point. You know, I'd been born a white man in California, which is sort of the biggest leg up that one can get. And uh, I think more people should recognize that. And I, and I got lucky by selling this business. I was at the right place at the right time. And um, you know, a couple of years after I started something, I, you know, I got rid of it and did well. And I thought that I had a bit of a sort of karmic balance to settle, I guess, or, you know, or something like I wanted, I, I felt like I had an opportunity to give back. And so I decided I was going to give away, you know, a meaningful amount of my, of my money. And I started to look into charities to think about like, how do I do good in the world? And I found the whole process to be really frustrating in a way that I didn't expect. It was sort of like talking to talking to organizations operating on a different level of reality than myself. I was pretty interested in getting data and evidence and numbers, and these charities were really keen on giving me pictures and videos and sort of narrative storytelling. And it just isn't, wasn't what I wanted because it's not how I ever made decisions in my life, certainly not how I ran my business. And I found myself um, deeply frustrated with this whole sort of journey that was meant to be really uplifting and really positive. And it turned out to be like this really deeply uh, frustrating thing instead. And so I decided that 
that can't be right. And I didn't want to waste a bunch of cash. Sort of felt like I was going to like, you know, light a bunch of cash on fire and hope that the smoke did something positive for the world. That was how I felt about, you know, the charities that I had found. And so I decided to go to university. Long story short, I, you know, at 25, did a, did a degree uh, and then moved to the UK to work on a PhD, which I started and, and didn't stop or and didn't finish. I sort of stopped in the middle with itchy feet. And this is where sort of the Founders Pledge piece starts is, you know, I left my PhD program. I joined a foundation. It's my first time actually at this point now working in the nonprofit sector. And the foundation was set up with a really beautiful mission, uh, which was to help social entrepreneurs who were using technology to scale impact. It was a really nice idea where you, you, know, you could make money and do good in the same process. And it just didn't work. It wasn't that the foundation or I was doing something wrong. It was that we were trying to help people that weren't really very good entrepreneurs. I say this with great respect to them because they were really well-intentioned people who had you know, dedicated meaningful portions of their lives to starting businesses that use technology to do good in the world. But, but they weren't good entrepreneurs because they'd never, you know, sort of been through the, the journey of starting something before, never really struggled uh, to like, never really struggled in the way that like you struggle when you start just a commercial thing. And so I guess the point is that doing a social enterprise is a bit like having a handicap and like trying to fight a really good boxer with one arm tied behind your back. And so there, you have this really difficult proposition and people who'd never started anything before, didn't have the grit, didn't have the resilience, had this sort of social conscience that is good in most respects, but in this instance was really bad. And, and, and it was sort of just like leading a horse to water and it refusing to drink. And, and so again, I found myself frustrated with the charity sector. And I thought, I'm spending my time helping these socially minded people try to build commercial propositions. Maybe I've got the equation the wrong way around. Maybe I should just help great commercial entrepreneurs to build and to do good, to build social propositions with their wealth. And that's sort of how Founders Pledge developed is this idea where just help the best people do the most good with their money. That was in 2014. I started playing with this idea and just sort of grown from then. And how is it today, but by the numbers and by the uh, offerings, how would you describe it? Uh, very more big, I guess, today. Um, so we are a team of 30, 35 people or thereabouts, 30, 34, 35. We are um, sort of in three countries. Uh, we were split across four offices, but now offices are, I guess, a thing of the past. So we exist in four, four cities, really. So um, our headquarters is in London. We have a team in Berlin, team in New York, and team in San Francisco. We have about 1,500 members now as part of the Founders Pledge community. These are founders, investors, and VCs who've all made a commitment to donate some percentage of their exit proceeds to charity. And we have Commitments valued at about $3.2, $3.3 billion, depending upon the day, from those 1,500 or so members. So we're a lot bigger than we were in 2014, which, and then it was just me with a silly idea and a, a piece of paper on a, on a clipboard going around trying to get founders to give away the money they hadn't yet made. So now, we, now we're a bit, more, a bit more professional, a bit slicker, more digital, as one would expect. And it's more than just getting people to make that pledge or that commitment to give money. You're essentially offering a bundle of things, advice, donor advised fund and a community, maybe other things, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, Thank you for bringing it up. Most, uh, most people think all we do is offer a pledge. Um, We are actually like a full stack philanthropy offering. Um, 
most people utilize us like their family office for their philanthropy. So we do three things. Um, the first is, you know, which I've just described is, is a pledge. It's, it's the easiest thing that we, that, that our members do, right? It's very straightforward. You commit to give away some percentage of wealth that you haven't yet made um, only when you make it. It's easy to do that. Um, surprisingly, people think it's hard, uh, but, but I think it's pretty easy. And once you've pledged, then we have a community program um, that takes various forms over the course of time. So in 2019, we did about 75 events all over the world. These range from quite small dinners in our members' homes to global forums where we bring together three, 400 of our, of our members and, um, and these sort of, uh, their families to explore things over the course of a full day. It's like a conference, I guess. And we do working groups and cause area cohorts and, you know, the occasional fun meetup. And we just started doing retreats. Well, we started in January and then stopped in February. But basically, the program is aimed at bringing together our community so that they can connect with each other and learn from each other and the people working in the field doing this really important work and trying to make the world better. Um, so we are... The, the people who come in and talk to our members are charity CEOs, practitioners, educators, policymakers, professors. I mean, uh, it sort of spans the gamut. Um, and the goal here is to help contextualize the world as it is for the vast majority of people that live in it, rather than just sort of the people that we encounter in our daily lives, which are, is generally a pretty homogenous group. So we want to sort of expose our members to a broader context um, and help them to understand that, um, that well, how little they know about how much there is. Um, it's, it's a fine line that we walk, but it's, you know, I, I think we do it pretty well. And then the third piece of what we do, which I think is the most important, is what I call infrastructure for impact. Um, so the first is the actual financial infrastructure for our members to move money globally. So this is, you know, the term a donor advised fund, DAF. We offer a DAF that is set up to be global first, um, and it allows our members essentially to make a single donation to an entity, us, Founders Pledge, get a tax receipt locally, wherever they're a tax resident, and then have the ability to instruct us on how they'd like to deploy their capital over the course of time. So we essentially do their grant making for them. Whereas you know many people could do this on their own, um, certainly, and that's the case if you only plan to give in the same tax jurisdiction that you live. But if you are interested in giving in, in any sense to a, like global organizations or things outside of your own country, your tax residency, then you're going to really struggle. You, you can't do it. And we provide this donor advised fund uh, as a zero cost service to our members. And then the second piece of that infrastructure bucket is we have a research team that does charity sourcing, vetting, diligence, and impact analysis, all aimed at helping our members make better decisions about how to allocate their resources when they have them to give away. So this is the sort of the answer to the question of like that I was facing when I sold my business, like what do I do with my wealth to make a positive impact on things, whatever those things are. So our research team is tasked with sort of uncovering the best giving opportunities and then advising our members and their families on how best to deploy their assets to accomplish the things that they care about. And so sort of end to end, we, we look like like a pretty full, fully loaded philanthropy offering for our members, all delivered at zero cost. I could see why that's attractive. 
do you seek to increase the amount people are giving or are you shifting within a cause area to more effective charities or to influence the cause selection or one of the all, multiple? All of the above. All of so, the above. yeah. So our mission is to empower entrepreneurs to do immense good, right? Um, it's that, that as a mission statement has zero fat on it, right? Every single word is necessary. And if you remove one of them, it sort of loses, it loses all intent. And, and the most important word in that whole statement is immense, right? So immense both in terms of the volume and in terms of uh, the value. So we have a minimum starting percentage. So you have to pledge at least 5% to join Founders Pledge. It turns out that 5%, if you're, if you're a US citizen, is probably pretty low if you're, if you're also an entrepreneur. Um, there's, there's a sort of a tax advantaged calculation to, to make. And, it, and almost always, it's more than 5%. So there's a lot of people that start at the bottom end of that spectrum, and it's our job to help them sort of think through, like, actually, what do I need to be happy? What do I need to set myself up in, in a way that's comfortable, you know, taking into account that the world is going to change? How much do I want to leave my kids? How, you know, do I want to invest? Do I want to, what do I want to do with my life? And then we try to help people understand that everything after that sort of optimal happiness point is unnecessary and can be utilized to do a pretty considerable amount of good if if, thought, if done thoughtfully. And so we get people to increase their pledge percentage. Our average pledge in 2020 is more than 10%, which is great. Um, uh, it's the highest it's ever been. And then we help to get people to sort of think about what they care about. So um, because we don't charge anything for what we do, we don't get treated like a service provider. So you know that you know the saying, the customer is always right? Um, you go into a restaurant and your, your food isn't right. You say, this isn't right. I'd like something else. And, you know, as, as a restaurateur, I would always, you know, I expect get you what you wanted. You're always right. Um, but it happens to be the case that in philanthropy and in the sector that we work in, the customer is most of the time wrong. And, um, and so it's our job to help them often to understand that in a really respectful way, of course, by sort of consciously complicating conversations and by, um, you know, sort of challenging assumptions and sort of digging into them and, and helping our members to reason from first principles um, to really um, ensure that they're making decisions with their eyes wide open, um, knowing that when they decide to allocate something to cause X, it's not going to cause Y as well. And this is a, you know, I would say a delicate process that, that if done well, can result in like orders of magnitude more good for the world and for the beneficiaries that you, you know we want to help whoever those beneficiaries are so um, it's a combination of increasing the amount finding the right things to to focus on and then optimizing within those cause areas for the most effective charities the overall goal being immense good as opposed to just some amount i think it was really interesting what you said about speaking truth to power, essentially, that you're able to That's right. tell your members when they're wrong because they're not directly paying you. And yes. that I think addresses, you know, potential question people could have about what, if this is at zero cost, is this sort of like charity for rich people? They could go buy mm -hmm. these services in the marketplace, this, you know, philanthropic advice or whatnot. So you absolutely that, could go buy these services. There are, there's no shortage of people selling them. Um, and with respect to the sort of philanthropic advisors, you know, and I do, and some of them are really very good. Um, but, you know, 
from my perspective, it's not, they're not always very necessary. So I think sort of creating the right incentives is super important. And we do it with our donor advised fund. Um, we do it with our advising. We do it across the board. Um, and, you know, and, and if you think about your sort of your average founder, and I don't just mean, you know, the Silicon Valley founder type, but I mean, your, your average entrepreneur, you, you, you're a founder, so you know, you know, it, you have to be a little bit crazy to start something. It's like the sort of highest stakes gambling that you can, that you can engage in because it fails so often. But when you start something and it becomes successful, maybe you raise some money, you, you get some scale, you hire a good team, you raise some more money. As the CEO or part of the founding team of, of, of a company, you don't get no very much. At least many of the members that, that we work with, many of the founders that we work with, you know, are used to getting their way. They're used to, you know, being told, yes, sure, whatever, I'll figure out how to make it work. Because you sort of have to have that that streak of like, we're just gonna figure out how to get it done in my way is the way it's gonna happen. They, they're not used to no very, very often. And, and, and they sort of become used to people saying just yes across the board. And often we are the sort of the first people that are supporting them in, in, in a long time, perhaps, you know, excluding partners and significant others, of course, um, that say no to them. It's like, you, no, you're, you're actually quite wrong. And here's, here's how and why. Now, it takes, um, it takes a specific kind of person to be able to say that. Um, we have great advisors, thankfully, who are, you know, sort of approach this with humility and approach it sort of interrogatively. But, but it, is, it is something quite different than what most sort of paid philanthropic advisors would engage in. And how do you measure your own effectiveness? We, we look at sort of our counterfactual dollars moved to high impact funding opportunities. It's a bit of a technical term, uh, but we look at basically, so we assume that everyone who's pledged would have given to charity anyway. So that, that's our starting point. We say, you know, the $3.2 billion that we have committed, we assume that that would have happened anyway. It wouldn't in probably the same scale that we're in, but just to sort of be hyper-conservative, we're our harshest critics, our own harshest critics. So we assume that that would have happened anyway. And then, and so we look at how our members actually deploy capital based on what we expect them to have done had we not supported them. We sort of determine the counterfactuality of each donation that someone makes and determine if it was influenced by us, Founders Pledge. And if it was, then we can say that our impact is sort of the counterfactual dollars moved to high impact funding opportunity. Yeah. So that's how we, that's how one, one of the key metrics of how we measure our success. That makes sense. I, th I think about philanthropy a bit like you think about investing. So when you, when, you know, when you have money, your own personal money and you want to invest it, most of the time you're going to go and, you know, hire an investment professional, like a wealth manager or, or, or some such, or, or find a, you know, uh, like an investment house that's basically going to optimize your, your investing for making a return on that investment. And you wouldn't work with an investment advisor who has a track record of losing his or her client's money, because that would just be dumb. You work with investment managers who've like demonstrated again and again that they can create more returns than the next best person. And it's rational and it's how it should be. When we think about philanthropy, um, the exact opposite is, is the case. Why would we not, as philanthropists, think about our giving like we think about our commercial investing? Our commercial investing has a return and that return is easy to quantify because it's more money. Philanthropy has a return too. 
it's much more complicated to quantify because it's not something that you can interact with in the same way, but it's arguably more important. It's, it's people's lives. So when you think about philanthropy, you know, I always ask myself, what's my, what's my return on this investment going to be? And if it's not the best possible investment return on investment that I can get, then I try to find something better and, and I approach it rationally. So for me, at least, m- my heart has taken me to give, like it's taken me to philanthropy, but my head should govern how it's done. Don't just listen, get engaged. You've heard me talking about the Startups for Good Giving Circle, and maybe you're wondering how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are US tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. I'm curious what you think about the criticism that's been leveled at donor advised funds that people are using them as a tax shelter and money is not flowing out of them quickly enough to charities and to the causes where it's needed. I mean, I think that that is a totally valid criticism and it's super problematic the way that many big DAFs behave. You know, for me, money is essentially useless unless it's an action. If money's not being utilized, it's not doing anything good for the world. And you think about the tens of billions of dollars that sit in, in, in charitable vehicles just in the US alone, and it's, it's almost criminal in a sense, right? Our DAF, so here's how most donor-advised funds operate. And, um, and I have, I've been really vocal about this, and I've talked to all of our members about it when they listen to me, which is that donor-advised funds have the wrong incentives. A donor-advised fund, your typical DAF, is, is compensated based on assets under management. They charge administrative fees for the, the, the assets that, a, that one of their clients has with them. Anywhere between sort of at the low end, 45 or so basis points to at the high end, 150 basis points per year. So the incentive that a donor-advised fund has as such is to, hold, is to hold on to as much capital as possible and not deploy it because that's actually how they make money. That's how they pay their employees. That's how they exist and persist by charging for AUM. And you might imagine as a result that they would like to have as much assets under management as possible. The more they have, the more they make. This incentive is to hold and hoard cash. Whereas you look at Founders Pledge and our donor advised funds, and ours is free for our members to use. It doesn't mean that it's free. It means that it's just zero cost for them. We, Founders Pledge, bear a cost for every dollar, pound, euro that we have in our donor-advised funds. Every, every day, every year, we lose money by offering a donor-advised fund, which creates the incentive to actually keep the balance relatively low. So we want our members to push money out of our DAF to end user charities rather than have it sit, have us sit on it and have it grow. When it grows, we pay money for it. It doesn't go out. The world isn't made any better as a result. So we've tried to create the incentives for our own staff that actually work well with the world that we want to see. Does that make sense? 
Yes, I think so. I think so. I'm wondering what you think about um, people who say like it's two pocket thinking, you're making money on one side and, and sort of giving it away from the other, but maybe you're causing harm in the way you're making your money, which you're not fully taking into account and is not fully accounted for when you think of your full life right. impact. How do you help people think through that? That is a, a very tricky question, right? Um, so I'm sure you've read or at least engaged with Anand Giridharadas' book, Winners Take All. I mean, yes. that, that's basically the thesis of his book, which is, you know, what you've just explained. Um, you know, and what we try to do, I mean, it's, it, it's not like a, there's not a bright line or, or very clear guidance, but we, you know, we have a, a zero harm grant making policy and we invite people to join Founders Pledge if we think they're going to be a good fit for our community. So if you go to our website, you can't actually sign up to Founders Pledge, um, you know, without first engaging with us. So we don't just allow anyone to join. We, you know, we want to talk to whoever plans on making a pledge to ensure that, you know, we, there's value alignment between that potential member and Founders Pledge. Uh, because if there's not, then there's very little point in us working with them and helping them if, you know, we believe radically different things. As part of that process, we seek to understand well, what their business is, obviously, and, you know, what it does. And hopefully, you know, hopefully it creates positive outcomes, positive externalities. Um, but, but we don't tend to work with people whose businesses actively create harm. Now, the question then becomes, what does actively creating harm mean? And, um, and, and that's where, you know, it's much less clear. Um, but I'd like to think that, um, that our members' businesses are actually forces for good in the world. They employ lots of people. They make life easier. Um, but I think that if it's the case that someone has made money doing something that's harmful, um, giving it away as a, you know, with the other hand is, is, is really problematic. Paying attention to some of your public statements, I get the impression you have a not-so-secret plan, which is sort of a second act that, that founders should do a socially-minded for-profit business as their retirement job. Yeah, something like that. Um, you're right, it's a not-so-secret plan. I, I've, I've talked about it on a couple of stages before. Um, basically, this sort of comes back to my time working at this at this foundation before I started Founders Pledges, trying to help social entrepreneurs build technology-based solutions to big problems. Um, and, I, and as I said earlier, like the problem was they just weren't good entrepreneurs. And, um, and so I think about like what makes a good entrepreneur and what makes it, and, you know, and I, and I can basically list out what those things are, but, but the thing that makes a good social entrepreneur is a little bit different. Uh, and, um, and I think that there, it's a combination of experience. Can I curse on this? It, it's a podcast. I can curse, I guess. It's experience and fuck you money, basically. So I think that being a social entrepreneur is really hard and having a deep resource stack helps to be more effective at doing it. Um, and, uh, and so I think that those sort of two things are, are pretty important. Um, if you're going to do something big, and technology driven that's also socially positive for the world. Um, it just, it requires a lot of resource 
and it requires an inordinate amount of grit, resilience, and, and follow through. And I think that people who've scaled, sold technology companies, who have gone on a journey with us, Founders Pledge, who've, who've tried to sort of understand the world in its totality, are really well-placed to build the next positive enterprises of the future. And I think I you've think, left think, out something else important, which is age. Yeah, the, well, the, yeah, there's also that. So ex experience as a proxy for like, you've been through it. Well, what so, I meant is that actually experience is helpful, but that the founders made enough money, uh, young enough, that they still have the energy and interest in embarking on a new that's ex big project. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, so you, e even if someone is like in their 40s or 50s when they exit, you know, the, the thing that they've been working on for a decade, you know, I think that you've, you've got another 15, 20 years of work left in you. Um, and, and that to me feels like whether you're 30, 40 or 50, like why not, why not spend the rest of your sort of working life focusing on the stuff that really matters? I, matters, I contrast, for example, more. I contrast, for example, Bill Gates with a Sam Walton and they both were named the richest person in the world different ages. And so their ability to give away their money later is very different. Mm. Totally. But, um, that, that's part of what I had in mind. I'd be curious, I'd be curious uh, for how you got the original money to start the organization. Was it all your own or did you get outside money? No, I got, I got outside money. I was, I was working for this foundation when I started to develop the idea. And I, I asked a couple of people, like the, the, the people that had started it, it was sort of a, it was connected to the Founders Forum. So that's Brent Hoberman and Johnny Goodwin. And I approached them, said, I want to do this thing. What do you think? I think it really has potential. And, and they, uh, they basically said, okay, well, we'll basically help, we'll help you to get it off the ground and see if it works. And at the same time, I went out and approached a couple of, uh, sort of corporate partners that Founders Forum had good relationships with, and the first, and the, and really, you know, aside from Brent and Johnny, Picte, uh, sort of the Swiss bank, they were the first people who said, yeah, this, this, this makes good sense. And they were, the, they were the first people that believed outside of like that little circle that I was in. So they wrote me a check and the first year we spent 60,000, 70,000 pounds, something like that. It was very inexpensive, you know, and then the next year, you know, I start, you know, by the time I started signing up entrepreneurs that, you know, network effects are really powerful. And I got introduced to a couple other people. And so, and I was getting $10,000 here, $10,000 there. And by the second year, you know, it had sort of picked up to the degree that, you know, we started getting inbound, inbound attention from donors. That's great. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it, I mean, we've had a, a very unique growth curve and, um, and fundraising curve, like most charities really struggle. Um, and, and it's not that we haven't struggled at times, but fundraising, I guess, in sort of in retrospect, fundraising back then was really easy compared to how much more difficult it is when you're, instead of raising, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars where you're raising several, you know, the high millions per year. Besides fundraising, what's been another of the big challenges? There are a lot of them. So that's not to, yeah, challenges are, fun to overcome. But I think that one of the, one of the things that has been hard 
to do is sort of distill Founders Pledge into a message that people can understand. People being like our, you know, our target audience. You know, what we do is relatively complex, even though it, 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 even though it doesn't seem that way at first glance, like it's just get people to commit to give to money to charity, but like the degree to which all of the different pieces that we do feed into each other to create this sort of virtuous cycle, it's complex. And so, you know, the sales proposition is, is not easy to wrap your head around at first. So I guess we've struggled with like, clear, like single-mindedness or clearness of our of our proposition. It's been tough to figure out how to do that, especially when you're larger and operating in multiple countries with multiple cultures. Is that a communication challenge, or is that also a product design question? Oh, it's product design more than communication challenge. I mean, we deal pretty exclusively in English, even though we operate in 34 countries. And it, it, I think it's a product design issue. And it's one that we've gotten a lot better at over the course of time, but it's it's still, you know, it's not straightforward. Have you ever considered holding uh, parts of the companies directly? How do you mean? Instead of the founder pledging to give money away, giving you early equity in the company that they're running. Yeah, so we we, we do that occasionally. So there's a couple of reasons I should start by saying, if it sounds like I'm giving tax advice, I'm not. <laughs> I can't give tax advice. I'm not a tax advisor. Anyone listening should not rely on this for, as tax advice. I've been conditioned by the lawyers to say that. Often, it makes sense, especially in the U.S., for entrepreneurs to donate their pre uh, or sort of privately held shares. But having a company donate equity tends to be for the founder, not very optimal. So uh, we, we, wanted to, we wanted to set this up. I wanted to set this up so that it was really easy for a founder c- to commit to give on the fly, take a couple of minutes to think about it, obviously talk to a significant other, and then be able to sign a sing- like a one, one sheet of paper that says, I'm going to do this thing. And then figure out actually, as you get closer to having liquidity, how one does it. And we looked at different forms of sort of how can someone rather than sort of dealing with it personally post-exit, give, you know, uh, options or warrants or some other type of uh, stock unit to us in advance. And almost all of them, warrants and options don't really make good tax sense for, for the founder. But we do often accept private shares, like actual just fully, fully vested shares of common stock donated by the founders or, or other relevant shareholders in advance of a liquidity event. And that, that tends to, to produce better tax outcomes compared to cash. So we do, we do that quite a bit these days. Yeah, and that is getting into the nuances of US tax law, which is probably going to bore yeah. most people. But I think I understand where you're going with that. I'm also curious about your sense of the funding environment for startup nonprofits. You mentioned you were able yeah. to raise money relatively easily in the small dollar amounts. What is it like for startup nonprofits? Do you encourage people to fund those or do they seek other sources of, of capital? Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. There's no shortage of nonprofits in the world. You know, there are many millions of them now. And 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 raising money is, is difficult because it's sort of it's competitive. There's lots of things out there. And I would I wouldn't wish it on some of my worst enemies, to be honest. That said, those that do start nonprofits that sort of start with 
for the right reasons and with sort of with the right head on their shoulders can be really successful. Um, and Founders Pledge has a seed funding program where we um, we tend to fund sort of middle stage, you know, a couple years of track record under their belt, some evidence base type of organizations. But we have just this year started to do sort of much earlier stage funding, seed funding for nonprofits to sort of validate hypotheses. And there's a bunch of other sort of, there's a bunch of other funders out there that do stuff like this. So Fast Forward is an accelerator in San Francisco. Kevin Barenblatt runs it. It's great if you're starting a nonprofit and you're sort of technology enabled. Obviously, YC has accepts a couple of nonprofits per cycle. And they're, they're, you know, and in in the UK, there's there's a there's a couple of sort of nonprofit accelerators, incubators, funding groups as well. But in in general, it's 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 tough. Yeah, we run a giving circle a Startups for Good giving circle for mm. startup tech nonprofits. And we're just getting that started, but very plugged in with Fast Forward community. And um, the YC program is great. It's just not very big, as you pointed out. Aside from that, it's, you know, it's, it's what anyone does when they raise money, family and friends, until you can get to a point where you've got some, some proof of, you know, some product market fit. Um, and, then, and then raising money once you actually have that evidence base is a bit easier. Do you have any advice for uh, aspiring founders, whether for-profit or non-profit? Funding advice or just, just general, general advice? Just general. Build things people want. <laughs> it might sound like Paul Graham, right? It's true. Um, and test so like and test assumptions until you're sure that those assumptions actually hold up to scrutiny. So and that's especially true in sort of the nonprofit space. It's it's just like you, we we often make these sort of pretty big assumptions about things that seem very obvious and seem very straightforward that, you know, on further investigation tend not to be. And if you build an entire business, commercial or otherwise, around faulty assumptions, it's going to really struggle. And, and, and in the nonprofit space, that, that tends to, they tend not to fail as quickly as commercial businesses, you know, because commercial businesses, they sort of, you can't convince people to continue to give you money on a, on a rational basis because when it's when it's not working whereas with nonprofits you know the appeals are off, more often than not emotional appeals and so those don't necessarily have a base in reality or in rationality rather and so you can you see these sort of nonprofits that just hang on for dear life sometimes for a very long time despite the writing being very clear clearly on the wall you waste a lot of time which book, article, or website would you recommend to aspiring founders? Wait, but why? It's the best thing on the internet, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Say more. So do you, do you know it? Have you heard of it? I've read some, yes, but I don't know okay. if our so, listeners are familiar. Wait, but, wait, but why is, is lo- sort of long-ish form. I don't even know how to explain it. Explaining, ex- explaining stuff. So it's written by a guy named Tim Urban, and he explores issues in depth that are seemingly quite complex and quantifies them and breaks them down in really sort of human and relatable ways. With great drawings and cartoons. And he does really great illustrations along the way. So, you know, um, Tim, I think is one of our great, great thinkers. He reasons from first principles in, in an astoundingly effective way and explains stuff over the course of, you know, many tens of thousands of words in his articles 
in his blogs, I guess, that just sort of help help people to think better. I think I think it's great. It's not very startup aligned, but if if you if if you're if you think better, then that that certainly must help. But it's my it's my favorite thing on the internet. I think he was the one who did the illustration of how many days you have in your life and how many oh, yes. hours you have with your parents or your children. And how many weeks how many weeks you live. So your life in weeks. This is so Tim actually had a really meaningful impact on my journey. Turns out that like our most precious resource is not our is not our wealth or financial wealth, it's our time. I can say that and you'd be like, yeah, of course. Of course time is the most important thing, but when you actually can quantify it and see how quickly it goes, that, that becomes a different thing. So if Wait But Why has your life in weeks, and it basically, quant- it, it's a poster as well. And you can, you, know, you can download this, print it, and put it on your wall. And it, and it basically has a small, like a, a small box per week of your life, an 80-year life, or 90-year life, rather. And you can put it all on a letter-sized sheet of paper and put it on your wall. And every week, you can like, tick off a box, and you can see the time progress. To me, it just, it, it made me realize how fleeting our time is and how important every moment that we spend in the world is. And we should be making the most of it while we're here because it's not going to last forever. Um, and uh, and that, that just sort of put, put a fire in my, in my gut, the likes of which I hadn't had in a long time when I, when I realized, wow, I don't have much time left. You know, I'm 30, I'll be 37 this year. And I still feel that. I've got plenty of plenty of time in air quotes, but also not so much, I guess. Very inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people follow up and learn more about your work? Founderspledge.com. I, I hope the website does it justice. We've got uh, quite a developing blog. So we, we've started to take a lot of the stuff that we talk about internally and write it down and put it out on our blog. So I think our blog is a really good way to start to think about stuff, whether it's how to plan your giving, how to think about trade-offs, how to you said how to square personal values with philanthropic goals. There's a lot on our on our website. Thank you so much for coming on Startups for Good and make the most of your week. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.